Good afternoon. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can be turning to the book of Nahum, and I'll give you 10 minutes to find it, all right? And you go look in there. And if you, I can't see from up here if you use your, the front of your table of contents. It's all right. I'll close my eyes. I'll cover my eyes. Uh, go towards the back of the Old Testament, of course. Now, some of you cheaters that have electronic devices now, you can get there a lot faster, uh, even though maybe still the abbreviations and all that throw you for a loop a little bit. Maybe this is a good reminder to, uh, we all need to brush up on our books of the Bible, right? Sing the song together. Um, But we're joking, of course, but this is a book that doesn't get studied a lot. Uh, Back towards the end of the Old Testament, I don't know if I mentioned this. It was just a few weeks ago that uh, we previously did Micah, um, but I don't know if I mentioned this, but we are teaching our kids now. Uh, We're going through Ezra and Nehemiah for the Bible Bowl for Lads to Leaders, and Uh, In reality, when we think about our books of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah would or should or do, I guess, in a sense, come at the end. Um, The prophets are what we commonly think of. They're shorter. They're together. They're towards the back uh, of the Old Testament. But in reality, they're prophesying uh, during different periods. And really, Ezra and Nehemiah being the return from captivity should come at the end of your Bible. So whether you ever read the Bible chronologically Um, looking at, you know, the books as they sort of fall in their order by years, uh, or you're just kind of familiar with that, it doesn't help, doesn't hurt, excuse me, to remind ourselves of that and kind of uh, be reminded to brush up on that. Of course, this book is one of the ones that doesn't get studied, as we said, Uh, one of the shorter prophets, as we've said, instead of minor prophets, because minor and major prophets have nothing to do uh, with importance or even where they're located or found, but simply uh, with their length. And so this is Maybe one way to think about the minor prophets sometimes would be the shorter prophets. I'm going to go ahead and and confess as we begin here that there's probably about six different ways I'm going to pronounce the name of the book. My family gives me a hard time about this. Uh, Sometimes, I think I've always said Nahum, uh, but some people say Nahum. And I even was listening to several things, you know, kind of refreshing myself and and thinking about the book again. And somebody said that the actual way you're supposed to say it is Nahum. And I don't know anybody that says it that way, at least not in the South. Uh, So I'll probably say it three different ways, but uh, just bear with me. You know what we're talking about, and we'll get to the man in just a few moments. Uh, When we think about the shorter prophets, or really the prophets in general, let me remind you one more time, because we only have a few times left, God be willing, but each time we've tried to emphasize that the prophets uh, did, they really pointed out four things for us. And if you have notes in a notebook that you keep, maybe you can look back at your old notes if you kind of keep notes that way personally. We've mentioned these every time, but that the prophets pointed out God's majesty, his holiness, his righteousness and justice. You'll notice in that list two of those things we talked about this morning. In reality, the lesson this morning was born out of something we'll get to in a few moments as we think about the patience of God. But the emphasis of the prophets was to point out God's majesty, his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. This book has got a very brief outline. I'm going to encourage you. I know we always joke about homework and not want to have homework. But this is one only three chapters long that would probably take you about five minutes to read. If you sat down and read it. So if you go home and have a moment want to do that or sometime this week to read over this book again and really maybe look at it in in more word-for-word detail than we'll have time this afternoon, I encourage you to do that. But the brief outline that we're going to look at, if you have your bulletin in front of you, all deal with Nineveh and Nineveh's doom. The first chapter, and really all three of these are just all three chapters, the first chapter deals with Nineveh's doom declared. Declared is the first thing. It's going to be declared, of course, by God. 
The second chapter deals with Nineveh's doom described. There's going to be a description. It may read a little weird for us. It may sound kind of odd uh, talking about some of these things. But he begins in chapter 1 with a declaration declared. Nineveh's doom described, number 2, chapter 2. And then number 3, we might call it Nineveh's doom deserved. Deserved. Why it is that they deserve to be destroyed. Why it is that they will suffer this doom. So really three chapters, real short, uh, very simple. Uh, when you look at the first chapter and the first verse, it says the burden against Nineveh. Let me encourage you to think of Nineveh a lot of times when we read it here in the sense of a, a really, what it really means is all of Assyria. When we know that the, the nation of Israel was taken captive by Assyria, Nineveh would mean sort of often stands for, I guess would be the best way to say it, stands for Assyria. Now, for us, the way that would translate is sometimes you hear people on the news or you might read someone says, well, this is what's happening in D.C. or Washington, D.C. What they mean is, of course, that's where decisions are being made for the country. And they might say, well, this is what's happening in D.C., but they mean the United States. And maybe that might be something that's more on an international broadcast or international level of news. But that's kind of the same idea. By saying here Nineveh, it sort of uh, enca encapsulates all of Assyria. Remember that when you think about the term or the name Nineveh, we're thinking as well about Jonah. Remember that Jonah's beginning message in the book of Jonah that we covered a few months ago was yet 40 days, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Do you recall that when we discussed Jonah and we kind of got past the story of the great fish that we all know so well, that Nineveh was a nation that was not following God? Uh, Jonah's message is they need to repent. And what's ironic about the story of Jonah is in the end they do repent. Do you remember that the king declares that national time of mourning, sackcloth and ashes, and they repent. And in the end, Jonah is the one who needs the rebuking, right? He didn't want to go, first of all, and he did, of course. But even when he preaches the message, then at the end he's sitting under that gourd and God withers that gourd and he's mad because the people of Nineveh repented. They did. And God has to rebuke Jonah, not the heathens, but this is the very same Nineveh. And we're going to say, our best guess, that Nahum here picks up some 150 to 200 years, 150 to 200 years after what takes place in Jonah. All right, let's talk about the man for just a few moments here. Uh, the author, of course, we have, it's been a while since we've said this, but we used to emphasize on our slides that the author is always the Holy Spirit, right? Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the one doing the inspiring. But in this case, we believe the author to be Nahum, and his name meant consolation or comfort. Consolation or comfort. Uh, and so that was uh, what his name, you know, would mean. And it's going to come into play here because he is also called in verse number one, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite, the Elkoshite. I don't know if that's a familiar term to you. It's not really to me besides this one usage here. The city that I guess might have been uh, Elkosh is unknown, unknown where this city was. Let me give you one interesting piece of information that I found or that was shared and something I was kind of reading and studying uh, was the idea that some people believe that this Elkosh might have been what we read in the New Testament as Capernaum. 
Capernaum. Now, you remember, I, I'm not going to go through all the instances, but maybe at least 10 to 15 times in the New Testament, we read that Jesus either passed through or did miracles or stopped in Capernaum. And so we know that name, even if we're not as familiar with it. But some people uh, believe that this was the city of Elkosh because Capernaum means village of consolation or village of comfort or we might even call it village of Nahum. That, that might be what we could say of Capernaum, the village of consolation or comfort or even literally the village of Nahum. And so there's a chance that this is the same city. Doesn't really matter, of course, ultimately to what we're thinking about or uh, you know, our message from this book. His prophecy, the author, of course, Nahum, the man, his prophecy is directed toward Nineveh. This is unique. We're going to come to one more unique item in just a moment, moment, but it's unique because it is not a prophecy about God's people, but about a heathen nation. Now, there's also a few other books. We've studied Obadiah. We studied Jonah, and those books as well deal not exactly with God's people, but that's kind of maybe a little different than when we think about the, some of the other prophets or Isaiah or Jeremiah or others. They're pointed towards God's people. God is speaking to his people by this prophet and saying, here's the message you need to know. But Nahum is not like that. It is unique because it's not about God's people, but about a heathen nation. However, it was written to God's people. And we believe, and I think it's a safe assumption, that it was written to Judah to comfort them because Assyria, as we would say, was a constant thorn in their side. Right, the constant thorn in their side. We could probably draw some similar parallels to the United States today. Not in the sense that we, we do love our country. It doesn't necessarily oppress us in the same sense as we might be thinking about here. Assyria was you know, basically the largest nation on the earth at that time. It's oppressing Israel, so a little bit different. But we might think of someone who is basically spitting in the face of God, disobeying him, and sometimes causing trouble for Christians. I said someone, but maybe somebody or, or some group. And when we see that, just kind of, it just seems like it's frustrating to Christians. You know, we wish that they would stop being that way and stop speaking against God's word. This book was not written about God's people, but it was written to Judah, but to give them comfort. Hey, I understand. I understand that these people are a thorn in your side. I understand that it seems like the bad guys always finish first. They always win and they are oppressing you. But understand that the prophecy is about their doom. They will suffer. They will be brought to their knees. And we'll come back to that here in just a few moments. Um, just for your thoughts, if you kind of like your Old Testament history, uh, Nahum was probably or possibly maybe is the better word, possibly a contemporary of Jeremiah or Zephaniah and Habakkuk, other books or other prophets that you're familiar with their name, possibly a contemporary of Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. This is not one of those things that maybe we sometimes get confused where there is one spokesman for God, he stands before a large group, or he proclaims a message here, and it's sent everywhere. That's not exactly the way the prophets work. Very often, there might be different prophets working in different areas at the same time. They're all speaking the message of God. They're all speaking on behalf of God, but they're speaking maybe to different people for different purposes. So those are some of the other prophets who may have been a contemporary of Nahum. Let's talk about the city of Nineveh for just a moment. A few interesting things there. Uh, the city was founded by an infamous man by the name of Nimrod. 
Some of you may remember Nimrod. Some of you may know the name Nimrod because maybe you've used it to try to call somebody a name or slander somebody, right? That's what we say sometimes. But if you want to turn there for just a moment, it's Genesis chapter 10. We won't take the time to read through the whole account or anything. But it's Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. And if you remember, as you turn, if you do turn there, Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. And so what we're doing is between the time of Noah and the great flood in chapter 7... Noah coming off the ark in chapters 8 and 9, then we're getting these descendants. We get our first good taste here of a good long genealogy that kind of drives us crazy sometimes, you know. Uh, there's, there's some other listing of who begot whom later or before that. But in chapter 10, there's the, the descendants, right, coming from Noah. And so it is in verse number 8 that Cush, there's another good name you could use, Cush begot Nimrod. And he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter. And so then we see that uh, as it flows down from there into verse number 11, that he built Nineveh. So yeah, Nimrod may be a name that you are familiar with, and whether or not you knew that was a Bible character or not, uh, Nimrod was the founder of Nineveh. Now let's think about uh, Nineveh for just a moment, kind of coming back towards the book of Nahum just prior to Nahum's prophecy, there was an Assyrian king by the name of Ashurbanipal who had soundly defeated Egypt. Now, if you turn back to Nahum, look at chapter 3 and verse number 8. You may find several things there depending on the version you're looking at. Chapter 3 and verse 8. Just prior to the prophecy, Ashurbanipal had soundly defeated Egypt at one of three places, depending on what you're looking at. We might say Thebes might be one name that you have. You might have the name No, the name N-O, No, or you might have No Ammon. And those are all the same place. Uh, Egypt, Thebes is the city that's uh, sometimes often the name that's used. Um, but Ashurbanipal and Assyria had just defeated Egypt. So what Nahum does is he uses Thebes or No Ammon, again, depending on what you're looking at, verse 8. He uses Thebes as an example to say what happened to them, Nineveh, is going to happen to you because you're not right with God. Now, when we read 3 and verse 8, are you no better than no Ammon? It just flies right over our heads. We've got no clue. But to do the history and think about it, it's a, it's a very vivid example. What just happened to no or no Ammon, this is what's going to happen to you, is what God is saying to Nineveh. And the interesting thing here, of course, is about Assyria is that they are quite well off at this time. They're quite well off. They're doing well financially. Everybody probably has everything that they need. But within no more than 50 years of this prophecy, they will fall and they will fall utterly, as we say. They're living the high life. They're this great city. We're going to come back and talk about that with an interesting point towards the end in our lessons applications for us but they're living the high life but that's not going to last very long because they will fall and they will fall utterly I didn't necessarily mean this this way but can I interject here back to the lesson this morning that's exactly what we were saying right Nineveh's living so high and they're thumbing their nose at God and they're essentially saying we're do what we want to do and another year goes by and they think well we must be good and another year goes by and they think well God's not going to do anything I mean you know he just must be trying to puff us up because he's, he's talked about this doom, but it ain't happening. But eventually it does because God's patience does have a limit. 
We said a few minutes ago that it picks up some 150 to 200 years after Jonah. Remember, we said it just a moment ago, but in the book of Jonah, they've repented. They repented. They turned towards God. The question is, how long does it take for people to turn away from God? Nineveh returned to its old way even after, its old ways even after repenting. And here's the thing. I want to ask for examples or show of hands. Probably maybe none of us, but maybe somebody you know. How often is it sometimes when people do turn back to worldly living that they're even more wicked than they were before? And maybe sometimes it's that same thought. I was wicked. I turned towards God. But now that I've been given all this time, then I'll just even get even worse. I'll do even more things. And that is exactly the way that Nineveh was. I heard one preacher, a friend of mine, who had discussed this book, and I was kind of listening to some of his notes, and he spent several minutes going into the evil and vileness of Nineveh. I decided to leave that out for our time and, and thoughts this afternoon, but you have heard some of those things about what they would do to Christians during the New Testament age, the first century, how awful they would treat them, how awful they would I mean, whether it be burning them or whatever it might be, Nineveh did a lot of those things as well. And even after repenting, they turned and were more wicked than before. When we talk about Nineveh being utterly, that they utterly fell, it was so utterly destroyed and wiped clean that people didn't even think it existed for a long time. Some of you that may be older than me may recall some times where, you know, we found these discoveries later in life and for a time that people would say, well, those folks must not have existed. You know, I don't care what the Bible says. It doesn't matter if it calls them this name. Those people didn't exist. The Bible's not true. Well, Nineveh kind of fell into that category for just a little bit. People didn't think it existed because we couldn't find anything. And then finally, in about the 1830s, 1800s, 1830s, it was found. There were finally some remnants found, including that king that we mentioned, Ashurbanipal, including his library, was finally found. And so, yes, it existed, and yes, it was also utterly destroyed. All right, let's talk about a few um, other notes real quick before we get to some lessons. What are the purposes, we might say, of the book? Well, one of the purposes was to show the justice of God. These, this is, some of these things are going to be what we talked about this morning because uh, that was kind of why I finally decided to do that lesson because the connection between the lessons of this book or the purposes. But the justice of God, God cannot continue to tolerate sin. And even though they stood for many, many years, and even after this prophecy, they'll still stand for many years, God's justice eventually will come about on these wicked people. Uh, number two, God's patience has a limit. That was kind of the one that threw me back to that thought I'd had um, a couple of years ago and kind of been mulling over. God's patience has a limit. It does. Uh, we see on the pages of the New Testament that that justice comes forth. That patience sort of wears out eventually or ends, and God might choose to, number one, give the children of Israel over to captivity, right? He doesn't destroy them, wipe them off the face of the earth, but he does give them over to captivity. Number two, some of these large, powerful nations, they are destroyed. Because his patience has a limit. We are thankfully able to see his patience continue. I'm so thankful that we get to keep living. That, that we have long lives here and we're able to keep going. But again, as we said this morning, it has a limit. And we do not need to mistake that. The third purpose we might include here is to comfort Judah. Again, Assyria had attacked them. Assyria had threatened them. Assyria had uh, sort of oppressed them several times over the course of history. And so this book, although not about God's people, as we said earlier, is written to them 
to comfort them and to help them know, yes, God, God's got it. God's in charge. He keeps his promises. He is going to care for you. It doesn't mean you won't suffer. It doesn't mean they might not do things sometimes you don't like or attack you or threaten you. But yes, you can be comforted here. Um, this is sometimes I give you the date. If you'd like to jot down notes, the date is between 664 and 612. I know, again, a lot of us, that's like, that doesn't mean anything to me necessarily. One thing that's interesting, though, about, about the book of Nahum is we can get a little closer because of these events. We know that the battle at Thebes that we talked about a moment ago, that battle at No Ammon, took place around 661. So we know that it was after that because God references it. We also know that it was before Nineveh fell. We said that it was going to come later after the prophecy. So we kind of have a couple of mark markers. If you were with us on Wednesday night as we talked about the Bible and how we got the Bible, I referenced a man by the name of Denny Petrillo that works out at the Bear Valley School of Preaching there. And he dates it around 625. That falls right in that window we just talked about. But we're able to sort of nail it down a little bit more than we sometimes do. So that's kind of uh, helpful to us as we think about these things. One other unique or peculiar item. I mentioned one a few moments ago. There is no mention of the prophetic call or the particular sins of Judah. There's no mention of a prophetic call or particular sins of Judah here when it comes to them. Again, it's not necessarily about them. I said I had one. I actually have two peculiar items. I'm sorry. The first one is the no mention of the prophetic call or, peculiar, or particular sins. The second one is that there are no New Testament quotes or no New Testament references. Now, let me remind you, that doesn't mean that this is less inspired. It doesn't mean that it doesn't belong. Simply that for the purposes of this book being written and when Jesus came to the earth and he's quoting the Old Testament, those kinds of things, it, it wasn't necessary in those ways. It is inspired. It is here for our learning, as we're going to talk about with our lessons here. But there, you can't turn to the New Testament and find somewhere where someone says, as the prophet Nahum said, or anything like that. So, all right, a few lessons here, and then this lesson will be, be yours. Number one, God is just. God is just. As we said this morning, it's even mentioned here in Nahum chapter 1 and verse number 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. He used Assyria to take the northern kingdom captive, but they would pay if they continued in their wicked ways. And they did, and they did. They continued, and they then had to pay because God is a just God. Do the evil sometimes get lifted up and feel like they've been excelling in life? Do sometimes the people who make the most money in this world, who, who are on the news and most famous, have the biggest houses, are they sometimes the most evil and we watch them on TV or whatever it might be and it's kind of frustrating that maybe they're seeing this excellence here on this earth? Sure, but God is a just God and people who sort of tur I mean, turn their back on him and don't follow him, they will pay. It may not be something we see, but they will ultimately pay because number one, God is just. Number two, God is long-suffering. God is long-suffering. He is patient. He is willing to wait sometimes. He does wait. As we said this morning, that gives us time to repent. Very often in the Old Testament when we look at the prophets and the prophecy is about something that is coming, it's because they should have time. They will have time to repent. They have time to change. 
That doesn't mean he accepts their sin, but he's giving them time. I'm so thankful that we're not struck dead the moment we sin after we're baptized. I'm so thankful that it's not three strikes and you're out. Because a lot of us wouldn't make it very far, right? Even after we're baptized, because we're human and we mess up. God is long-suffering, and that is very, should be very comforting to us. Number three, no one is exempt from God's laws. No one is exempt from God's laws. God used Assyria to punish Israel, but it didn't exempt them from God's punishment. It just didn't. They might have felt like they were living the high life and that they were protected, and maybe they were for a short time in a sense, but that's not the way it's going to be. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. We will, and we need to be prepared. We feel that a little strongly, more stronger than some people maybe, stronger than some people because as we're trying to do what's right, but it's a great message for us to remember and for us to share with others. I think I did say it this morning, but, but very often I'm not trying to be discouraging. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not trying to scare anybody or any scare tactics or anything like, anything like that. I have to answer for the same things that I preach, that I study, but it's just true. God is just, no one is exempt, and we need to live as prepared people. Number four, let's think about the sin of pride. A lesson that we can learn about is the sin of pride. I told you that we we're going to come back to Nineveh for just a moment, and this is the place. Nineveh was a large city, a well-fortified city. One of the things that we learned over the course of time, not only through writings and history, but possibly even through the excavation and the things that have been found, it's believed that the walls of Nineveh were eight miles long. Okay, I'll try to, try to let us think about it for a minute. Eight miles long. Some people believe they were at least 30 feet thick or more. So eight miles long, 30 feet thick, and about 70 feet high. Again, I know it's hard to sometimes put that in our mind to fix, fix exactly what that might have looked like. But what it was said about, maybe one way we could look at it, it was said, written down, that you could ride three chariots, three chariots wide on the top of the wall. Now, you NASCAR fans that talk about going three wide, right, in the, in the car, that's three wide, right, on top of the walls. That's how wide, tall, heavy, thick they were. It don't matter. It didn't matter. Because there is a sin of pride. They probably were able to sit back and think, we got it made. We are, no one's going to be able to take us down. But it's not true. They had that pride, but ultimately they were going to fall. And then fifth and finally this morning, the need to learn from others' mistakes. The need to learn from others' mistakes. Judah saw all of this. Judah felt the oppression from Nineveh, Judah witnessed them fall. So think about it in a moment, or for just a minute here. It's kind of sometimes hard to fix in our brain. The northern kingdom went away into Assyrian captivity, all right, into captivity by Nineveh. The southern kingdom, Judah, Judah watched all that happen. They watched Assyria. They watched the northern kingdom go into captivity. They saw all that. And what happened to Judah? They still fell. They went away into Babylonian captivity, but it didn't change. They saw something so strong and so big in somebody that thought they were too big to fail, as we say, and yet they did. They saw their brothers carried away into captivity, witnessed all that. They didn't change. They didn't learn from these mistakes. 
as we are living in the Christian age, as New Testament Christians, we have to learn not only from history, but also from the mistakes of others and certainly from our own mistakes. I know that we don't think about the book of Nahum very often, but let me encourage you as we've done this afternoon, it's a very short read and it's just a reminder of some of these lessons that we have looked at about reaping what we sow, about where the ultimate control lies, who is ultimately in charge, and how we should always be on guard, always be looking out. The book of Nahum is sort of tucked away and one you may not ever think about, but may we take the lessons we've talked about today and really remind ourselves of these things. We can be better. We can learn from what others have done, and that may be one of the best things we can do with this book that we've covered this afternoon. We're about to sing a song of invitation here. As we said this morning, we pause and do that at the end of each lesson because there is no better time. Maybe it's something from the book of Nahum that's sort of stirred you up to think about your life, maybe the way that you've been living. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something else you've been struggling with. Maybe it's just the prayers of this congregation that you need to encourage you through some troubling times. We're thankful to take that opportunity to extend heaven's invitation you're not a child of God and you'd like to become a Christian today by being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, you can do that and nothing would make us happier than to encourage you to do that and to rejoice with you as you make that commitment. If you're here and you've done that, but as a child of God, you've wandered away, you've struggled in your life, maybe you've turned your back on God, maybe you felt like you didn't need him anymore, then why not change this afternoon? Why not come back to him? Maybe you need to pray for sin to be removed from your life so that you can be on the path to heaven above, that you can be right in the eyes of God. Maybe you're here, as we said, you just need the prayers of the church to encourage you. We're thankful for this moment, even now as we stand together and as we sing.